0: Episode 343, What Provider Leadership Teams Need to Know to Operationalize Value-Based Care. Today, I speak with David Carmouche, MD. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Most people who have been in the healthcare industry for a while have heard by now the metaphor about the two canoes. Provider organizations or health systems with some of their payments coming from a fee-for-service FFS payment model and some of them coming from value-based arrangements have the challenge of one foot in the FFS canoe and one foot in the value-based canoe. They're probably going through a lot of metaphorical pants is the main takeaway that often comes to mind for me. But wardrobe malfunctions aside, this is a really difficult organizational challenge. That's what I'm talking about today with Dr. David Carmouche. How to deal with the operational challenges, the cultural challenges, maybe even very arguably the generational challenges here. Top line, very top line, to succeed in value-based care, you got to have three things aligned. Number one, the payment model, the construct of the contract. No kidding. You have to have value-based contracts to succeed in value-based care. The big problem here, which is not to be underestimated, is that there are some areas of the country where it's really tough to find somebody or enough somebody's willing to offer a capitated, prospective, value-based contract. That would be really frustrating to want to go forward if you're a provider in a value-based way, but to not have a willing payer partner and or employer partner to do so. So please step up, payers, policymakers, and employers in those areas of the country but the construct of the value based contracts can also not be overlooked toward the end of this interview Dr Carmouche gets into the different results that were achieved between two patient populations one served by a Medicare Advantage MA plan and one in an MSSP Medicare Shared Savings model so the same provider network the same environment same geography same number of lives different payment model Stick around for that part of the conversation. It's pretty eye-opening. The second of the three things to be aligned to be successful in value-based care are physician-slash-administrative incentives and the employment models. Seriously, who is thinking that Anyone's going to succeed managing downstream risk when the physicians making the decisions about downstream services used are bonused by how much downstream costs they can drive (laughs) and everyone is eating what they kill. If culture eats strategy for breakfast, incentives eat culture for lunch, as they say. Number three important thing that is required to succeed in value-based care, leadership skills. Leaders who are going to succeed in a world moving from FFS to VBC have to be mission driven toward that cause. They have to be strategic enough in their approach to take potential short term revenue hits in pursuit of the longer term goal. Even the medium-term goal, honestly, if you think about the whole context of what's going on here. Leaders also need the skill and aptitude to pull off the change management and adjustments to the organizational culture that are needed. Staffs and teams really need systematic support. Value-based care is a team sport, and teams require leadership. Here's one example of where not having great leadership trickles down to bad results. If nurses or social workers, or in general, people of color or women in an organization feel demeaned or not valued by a critical mass of those in power, and maybe here I mean physicians or other physicians that they work with, then patient safety scores diminish and quality goes down. There's enough studies on the impact of having and not having psychological safety that it's getting harder to dispute what I just said. And if this environment becomes as toxic as the stories that you read about often enough, that's on the C-suite to fix. If the C-suite has value-based aspirations, that C-suite really might want to reprioritize their to-do lists to think about stuff like this because toxic environments make consistently delivering high-value care and satisfied patients difficult at best for many reasons. Here's a timely side note. I heard someone say the other day that in light of the pandemic and the FFS inpatient and outpatient volume fluctuations that, you know, plummeted and rose at various points during the pandemic compounded with Medicare FFS rates that some institutions claim are not profitable or profitable enough. Someone said that given these factors, the best way to de-risk is to take on more risk. That's interesting to think about on a number of levels. Today, as I mentioned, I'm talking about all this and more with Dr. David Carmouche. Dr. Carmouche was recently the executive vice president of value-based care and network operations at Ashner, which is a very big integrated delivery network in Louisiana. You heard it here first, folks. But Dr. Carmouche will take on a new role in November 2021. He will oversee Walmart's expanding clinical care offerings and operations, including Walmart Health. MeMD and its social determinants of health line of business. Here's a quote from the announcement about Dr. Karmush's move that I thought was interesting. In quotes, connecting with patients in more places and creating a seamless, personalized patient experience is a crucial component in the new healthcare environment and a space where Oshner, as well as retail leaders like Walmart, will continue to invest. Close quote. Dr. Carmouche has been on this podcast before, episode 316, and Ask an Expert 15, so if you'd like to hear more from him, go back and listen to those two shows. Also, if you're looking for another episode that digs into the importance of leadership, listen to the one two weeks ago with Gary Campbell, episode 342. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Dr. David Carmouche, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Great to be here. It has often been said how difficult it is, where you have some patients in value-based scenarios or, or value-based plans, and then other patients in a traditional FFS environment. Because the goals are different, you know, like in a PPO FFS, you want put heads in beds and the the value-based one, you're concerned about downstream costs. How do you operationally deal with that?
1: Yeah, I mean, this is the biggest challenge that I face. You know, I call it the two canoes, right? You've got one foot firmly planted in the fee-for-service volume canoe. You've got this other foot that you've put in the second canoe, which is value. And the question is, do you have to live in a world where you're balancing those two feet or could you could you jump into the second canoe without capsizing, right? I just love that image because I think that's kind of what we feel Here's the approach we've taken, and that is that it's pretty clear in Medicare that our strategy in the future and today is one of value. And the reason is we don't make a positive margin under Medicare, both, frankly, in the inpatient arena or in the outpatient arena. So anything we can do to convert the effective reimbursement in the Medicare space to something greater than Medicare fee-for-service rates, we think is in our best interest. So we've gone very heavy into moving as much of our Medicare business into risk as we can and so we take full capitation under a couple of Medicare Advantage contracts. We've moved our Medicare ACO into an upside downside risk arrangement and are closely eyeing the direct contracting entity model that was recently released. So I think we would say we want as much risk as we can as we can take in Medicare. That allows you to build the infrastructure To be successful, that infrastructure is data and analytics. It's care coordination, case management, call centers. It's all of the things you need to support physicians at proactively managing the health of a population where you have financial risk. And then you start to turn your attention to commercial and you do it in a responsible way. When you wake up and you've put all your Medicare business in in risk and you've started to put segments of your commercial business that way, you know, you start getting to a percent of total patient revenue for a system that is more valuable to you in a risk arrangement than it is in a fee-for-service arrangement. And that allows you to then start to convert more of the incentives for providers. So for example, in primary care today, we've totally de-emphasized the RVU as a measure of value and have moved to panel size and panel performance and value-based contract performance as a way to pay our providers. On the subspecialty side, we've carved out pieces of their comp and are starting to look at value-based metrics to help to kind of focus them on the things that we need to focus them on. And they're, they're real value-based metrics. They're, they're things that get at clinical variation or unwarranted care and things that are frankly difficult to talk about within medical groups when you, you start talking to physicians about differing rates of elective C sections across the group and 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 start incentivizing people to act more in line with with best practices, those are fun conversations. So we're well on this path, but to your point, it is still difficult at times, especially when most of our hospital operators have grown up in hospital administration. They're used to incentives that are things like, you know, bed days or inpatient discharges or throughput, length of stay, RVUs, and those measures that that power operating reviews and the and the systems within health systems are barriers, right? And so evolving those into different metrics that align with value is is part of the challenge. and and certainly we're grappling with that. We're not there fully, but we've made some strides.
0: Is that something that is a generational divide? Providers who have lived too long in an FFS environment where, you know, volume equals money. So they don't want necessarily the rules changed versus those who are much more concerned about, you know, maybe have not experienced that model for long enough, you know, and or truly have an issue with spending seven minutes with a patient because... You just can't help someone in seven minutes, you know, to the level that a patient is going to want.
1: So that's a really, really interesting question. And I'm not sure that I have the answer exactly right. I think there may be a generation. Certainly there is a generational component to those who've been in practice for 20 plus years who've only known one way to do it and... and you know, maybe you're eyeing the end of their career and thinking, wow, you know, learning a new trick or set of tricks or making a new set of investments or aligning myself in a different way. is just too taxing emotionally and mentally at this point in my career. I'm sure there's part of that. I think a bigger challenge, though, is that in many markets, there are just no opportunities to have experienced value-based care. I was just up at a health system in in northeast Georgia last week doing a four-hour physician leadership seminar on the leadership skills required to move from volume to value. And they, this health system is a three-hospital system. They've got really top-quality physicians. They're in a somewhat protected market. They have a very competitive commercial payer market. None of the commercial payers have really pushed value-based contracting their way they've got a growing community so they're growing commercial lives in those markets they're the a system in the market and so they've got great fee-for-service rates it was really interesting in talking to the physicians in the room there were about 30 physicians in the room and some of them were new to your point younger generation physicians and then there were some who who were older none of them have ever experienced working in a value-based care environment so their biases they have no biases they only know one way That may create a bias, I guess, or a set of biases, but they all spoke to what they thought they should do. Over 20 of them, when I pulled them at the beginning of the conversation, said they felt like they should be practicing in a value-based environment. They felt like they should compete based on value. They just didn't know how to do it because there wasn't anyone in their market. There were no large employers mandating it or asking about it. There were no commercial payers pushing it or offering it. And so they felt like the ACO model or the, you know, kind of working with CMS was their only path. And that was such a small part of their overall business that they didn't feel like it was going to be sufficient. So their whole question was, how do we engage in collaborative relationships that would allow us to move into value? And I think that plays out over a lot of the country today and probably is a bigger barrier to progress, in my mind, than a generational you know, gap or, or set of beliefs.
0: It's like that William Gibson quote, the future is here. It's just unevenly distributed.
1: That's <laughs> yeah, a great point, right?
0: I've heard that same thing as well. There's certain areas of the country where value based care, to your point, has almost reached this tipping point. Whereas there's others where there's physicians that are really trying to to engage in value-based contracts and can't find a willing partner.
1: physicians, even new physicians, no one wants to rush through their day in a series of seven minute visits and then go home and do a couple of hours of EMR charting and not not see their family and And really have is their only trick to make greater revenues for for themselves and their families you know seeing more patients i think no one really wants that and i think when you look at provider dissatisfaction in this country and burnout in many ways it's this there's no no solution in sight for this dynamic that has played out and so i I do believe you know the reason i've gravitated towards value-based care frankly was that I think it's the only way that we allow physicians to have healthy 30 plus year careers and be happy and fulfilled and ultimately make you know great livings, but also live their lives and and the, apply their prof- you know their their skills in a profession in a more rational way. I do think value-based care is is the answer or a answer to a lot of the burnout we see in the country today.
0: I recall sitting in a, in a business class, actually. And the whole point of the class was that time is a finite quantity. So any business that is time constrained, there is a, a cap on how productive you can be. And it's funny because I've thought about this many times and it, it doesn't seem to enter into the conversation often enough, if you ask me, that with FFS... That is time constrained, that if you're a physician and you're put in an FFS environment, the only way to make money is with your limited amount of time. Whereas in a value-based context, it's team-based. So there can be other ways to scale other than working 24 hours a day.
1: Yeah, let me put a finer point on that, right? So in a fee-for-service environment, not only is there a finite number of encounters in a given day that you can execute, you're forced to bring people into the office to create an encounter who don't necessarily need to be there. A 30-year-old person who views you as a primary care physician and who is otherwise reasonably healthy may or may not actually need to come in and see the doctor every year, but if they don't, you A, may lose that connection with them if you go too many years without seeing them, and B, certainly can't be paid for things like sending them an email health questionnaire for them to update their health status or having them come to the lab just to do some basic biometric screening and review it, but in a way that would be convenient for them and not really require them to miss work. There's just no way to do that. So you end up creating encounters that aren't necessary clinically, but that's how the payment system has set up. And and so, you know, what value-based care allows you to do, A, is, is be paid when people aren't requiring services. And it also frees you up to be innovative in how you take care of them. You're not worried about emailing them answers to their questions or having a virtual visit with them or having your nurse or a care coordinator visit with them because there's a different payment model in place that rewards you for the net of those activities. I think the second thing is just, wow, look at what happens when you have a pandemic. I mean, now who knew, right? It's been a hundred years, but in COVID, many providers, especially in primary care, saw their, their revenues drop 30, 40, 50%. Well, you know, in all honesty, we're going to have a record year at Oxter in 2020 under value-based contracts. Uh, utilization went down, but we've got contracts that create value now for us in that setting. So I think it's, it's also a hedge against major and sustained uh, interruptions to your business. And I think fee-for-service creates a lot of vulnerability that we saw come to fruition with COVID-19.
0: Let me bring up a potentially confounding factor that might marry into, you were saying that you gave a leadership talk, you know, what are the sure. qualities that are necessary in order to move into a, a value-based world? And one of them I see as being particularly troublesome just relative to, you know, this far better than me, I never went to medical school, is this kind of um, ruggedly individual <laughs> approach. That gets drilled into, it must be something that happens in medical school (laughs) because it's pretty or maybe just like the type of person that becomes a doctor. But in order to effectively practice value-based care, it is T-based care. You know, you you were talking about coordinated care as a real key. So you can't poo-poo the behaviorist or the nurse or the, (laughs) the pharmacist. It's really a matter of being able to recognize and value the diversity on the team and the different skill sets and experience that each person has, which doesn't seem to come naturally to physicians. Is that part of the cultural change that you have seen necessary and like, what are the ways to be successful here?
1: Yes, (laughs) you nailed it. It is beat into you a little bit in medical school and then reinforced in, in residency. If you think about it, we haven't really changed how we select and train physicians in this country. Really, in the last hundred years, we haven't really done it different. We still value you know, high academic achievement in college, high MCAT scores, the ability to memorize information and regurgitate it. Even in an era, though, when we now go to Google or we go almost anywhere to learn anything in a moment's notice, we still train physicians at memorization. We still expect them to regurgitate a set of facts that they learned in medical school. And it seems as if we've missed this notion that, wow, information is much more readily available to both patients and providers. Maybe we should start selecting future physicians based on people skills or their humanitarianism uh, because the, you know, data access is now more ubiquitous and yet we haven't. So I do think there's an imperative for our medical schools to kind of re-envision that. But for providers who are in practice today, yeah, it requires a little bit of humility to move into a value-based care environment. We as physicians were taught to be accountable for our outcomes, and we create probably an unnecessary and unfair burden on ourselves as we carry that through our career. I think, I think value-based care, to be successful at it, you start to recognize the limitations of traditional healthcare delivery, and you start looking at the impacts of community or environment, the social determinants of health, the genomics behaviors. And when you start to recognize that those things influence total medical expenditures much more than the drug I choose or the diagnosis I'm going to make, you start to understand that you have to surround yourself with people who can help solve those sorts of problems, right? So aligning with community resources, having access to social workers or or integrated behavioral health professionals as part of the care team. All of those things have a bigger influence on total medical expenditure than the activities of a physician. And so in the value-based care world, a physician does have to recast themselves as part of a team. It's an important part of the team. There's still something to that physician-patient relationship that is healing, that creates a trusting context for some of the other services that may have to be provided. So in reality, by subjugating oneself as a physician to the team one actually elevates themselves at the same time it's paradoxical but they become more focused on important relationships or crucial conversations or making dealing with diagnostic dilemmas the things that that physicians really should be there to deal with too many times physicians get you know consumed by documenting in the electronic medical record or managing chronic conditions that frankly should be managed with evidence-based care protocols and probably nurses or nurse practitioners executing against that, pharmacists uh, doing drug reconciliation, et cetera. So it is an enormous cultural shift and it's one that I think physicians have to have an openness to, a sense of humility around but ultimately, it's one that the facts and the requirements to be successful. Once you shift the payment uh, mandate, and so I th- I do think putting physicians in a position to learn and to understand that is important and to support them through that transition. But but I think it's it's certainly doable. And we've got quite a few physicians who have made that shift already here at Ochsner.
0: It's not even just an ability to work on a team like that skill, which, by the way, I just saw another yet another article in health affairs the other day supporting the idea that coordinated care provides superior outcomes, or at least in this study, than a solo practitioner but it's also the idea of processes and having nuanced care plans and being able to work within a standardized model that a lot of physicians find very difficult.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. And, and I also think the, the construct of the value-based agreement has an influence on that as well. And so we, we've submitted for publication, hopefully to be published soon in Health Affairs our experience inside of a Medicare Advantage versus a Medicare shared savings program. So very interesting, right? The same provider network, same environment, same geography, same number of lives that have been in capitated Medicare Advantage plan in our market at the same time that we had another group of patients in Medicare fee-for-service as part of our ACO. And looking at, a, at the cost for those two, it's significant. It's about $100 million a year difference in the cost for those two populations in favor of Medicare Advantage. And so then you have to start unpacking, like, what, why? Well, if you think about what goes on in a Medicare Advantage world and in a capitated payment world... Well, we do health risk assessments on these patients. We do in-home visits. We we deploy our outpatient case management. We the health the plan that we work with does utilization management in the post-acute space. There's more focus on these patients by our primary care physicians. So I mean there's a lot of things that that actually also emanate from the actual value-based construct that you're operating in that I think we're learning a lot about. And so look forward to be able to, you know, maybe in a follow-up, we could have a, a conversation about that particular set of learnings, which we think is really interesting and speaks to not just the provider piece of it, but the actual contractual way that you approach value.
0: That is fascinating. Yes, I would love to dig into that when the time is right. So you're saying that the Medicare Advantage Cohort cost hundred million dollars less. Plus, they—it sounds like—got additional services. I mean, I don't mean downstream medical they services. Did. No, they
1: got—they right. They were touched in a different way, uh, just based on what you're allowed to do, frankly, and where there are benefits in Medicare Advantage. And I'm not here to advocate one. It's just this was our observation. It was just really interesting to say, look, here we have a thirty thousand beneficiaries in a capitated Medicare Advantage block that we've seen for several years. We've got another. 30,000 was in a Medicare shared savings plan. It was kind of a natural ex- experiment. Certainly there's selection biases and you know maybe some patient level factors as to you know why somebody might choose a Medicare Advantage plan versus a Medicare fee for service program, but even when you appear to adjust for some of those biases, there's a substantial cost reduction uh, seen inside uh, Medicare Advantage. And it just reminds me of how complicated this all is, right? It's not, I mean, there, there are patient level factors, there's provider level factors. I think you've you've detailed both of those. And I think now there's construct level uh, complexities to this work that all have to get sorted out.
0: Is there anything I neglected to ask you that you think is important that you want to either summarize with or add?
1: This was the context of the, of the conversation I had up in Georgia at that health system last, last week. So it's fresh on my mind. And it's, it's really like, okay, so let's say you're at a health system or you're at a payer and you buy into this notion of collaboration to create value. So, like, what are the key skills, uh, leadership skills that are required to pull this off? Because it's really challenging. And I think I've distilled it down to four. And I think this is kind of how I'll summarize it. I think it's, the first is vision. And you have to have a compelling vision and belief that value based care offers benefits to all of the actors in the healthcare ecosystem, right? Consumer, patient, employer, payer, provider. It's just the right way to to organize care. So you you have to believe that and you have to be able to articulate that in a convincing way. So you have to have vision. The second thing is then to create these collaborative relationships that allow for value. You have to be able to communicate effectively across sectors, which means you have to take the time to learn the business of those who you seek to collaborate with, at least learn enough of what their pain points are, what their goals are to be able to have a a reasonable conversation with them. The third thing is you have to have courage in a couple of ways. Number one, you are fighting a legacy system that's filled with inertia and there are many 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 people who are willing to take shots at those of us who are trying to change the system you also have to know that courage is required to traverse the value-based care journey because there's not a clear roadmap. It's different by market. It's different by health system. It's going to look different in Louisiana than it's going to look in Oklahoma than it's going to look in Hawaii. And so because there's no roadmap, it's scary, right? And so there's a certain amount of courage. And then the last thing is optimism. You know, As the inevitable barriers you know, arise, the sense that we're collectively going to overcome them. We're going to work them out. We're going to solve them. Just critical to kind of get this done. Those are the four key things that leaders who want to work in this space successfully need. And I I don't think we have enough of that in healthcare. And And uh, I'm trying through some of my own efforts to speak a little bit more about the leadership skills required for for value, because I think we need more leaders who can help do this. You
0: need to Get out there and and, <laughs> and have those conversations because I couldn't agree more. Is there any place that you would want to direct people to learn more about your work?
1: Yeah, a few ideas. I mean, certainly I'm on LinkedIn and I've got links to several articles or interviews there on my LinkedIn page. Some of the things I've spoken about in public are on YouTube as well. And then finally, there's a book that features some of my work. It's, it's called From Competition to Collaboration written by Bob Sachs and Tracy Duberman. And they highlighted some of the leadership skills required in this space and, and some of my work there. So I would shamelessly plug their book for them and, and uh, ask folks to check that out if they have, if they have a moment.
0: Dr. David Karmouche, thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today.
1: That uh, was great. I re- really appreciate you having me. Thanks.
0: Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at relentlesshealthvalue.com.